I didn't know I was going to talk, really, you know, and um, I'm not going to talk very long. Um, what, you, what can I say? The man who um, we are here to, to talk to, who will talk to us, that is Martin Luther King. Um, I think it's very important to remember that this moment in 1968 is a kind of combination of things that began in this country quite a long time ago, and specifically speaking, 1954, with the Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation in the schools, and in 1957, when um, Martin was thrown that ball in Montgomery, Alabama, when Rosa Parks refused to stand up because her feet hurt. Now, we watched in this 11 years, in this 13 years, depending on the point of view, in this country, um, a terrible descent. What Rosa Parks was saying in Montgomery in 1956, and what those were saying when they were marched for 389 days, the country did not want to hear and did not hear. And as time rolled on, and kids including people like Stokely Carmichael, were being beaten with chains, thrown into jail, marching up and down those dusty highways, trying to change the conscience of this country. Still nobody heard, and nobody really cared. And Paul Martin spent most of his time in and out of jail, as all of us know, trying to redeem what we claim we live by, the principle of love your neighbor, the principle of if it happens to you, it's happening to me. The principle John Donne talked about, you know, when he said that any man's death diminishes me. But in this country, race and Christianity and power are so tied together in self-interest, what one takes is self-interest, that no one heard it. It's only now that people are beginning to suspect that something terrified has hap ter terrifying has happened and with our consent, because we do know that we cannot fight a civil war, which is what this ferment is about, because I am your brother. I was born here. My father's and my father's blood is in this soil, and nothing will drive me from this country. It also belongs to me. You cannot fight a civil war and a global war, too, at the same time, and especially at both are predicated on the same principle. And I'm not now accusing the Americans of being wicked. I'm accusing us of having allowed ourselves to be brainwashed into a state of ignorance which allows us to forget that the peasant in Saigon and the peasant in Detroit are the same people. And what we don't know about the peasant in Saigon is what we don't know about Sambo here and that has destroyed the American sense of reality. And I suppose what we're here to do tonight is begin to correct that. Are people who can believe that I was happy on the levee picking cotton, or happy in the mines digging coal, and giving all this away to other people for their wealth, and unable to protect my house, my woman, my children, 
are people who can believe that I did this out of um, love for other people and that I was happy doing it and that all those songs and dances I learned while I was doing it meant that I was happy can believe anything and I'm afraid that the people who claim to represent us in Washington these days from the president on down do believe that and do believe as they believe so long that they have the right to tell me how to live and are unable to begin to suspect that other people Sambo for example can teach us a great deal about how to live that's all I have to say really I think that the most hopeful thing that is happening in this country now is that finally cities being blown up the isolation of black and white being more severe than it's ever been before the great great gap between all of us in this country all over this country and the fact that the government does not in any way but ever respond to what the people feel is finally forcing all of us to realize that the life of this country is in our hands. It is not as it was thought of 10 years ago when Martin and those kids were marching up and down those highways, a Negro problem or a civil rights problem. What it is for all Americans now, and I mean this literally from the very bottom of my soul, it is now a matter of life or death. It's up to us. Thank you. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time, it's time to, to speak out. out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We won't be We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, yes we, we can. can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. Thank you very kindly for your heartwarming applause. 
I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here and to see each of you out this evening and to see you here in such large numbers. I'm so happy to have the opportunity of hearing uh, these eloquent statements this evening. I've been speaking. I think this is about my fourth speech today, so I have about spoken out. So since you won't hear much from me, you have already heard some very excellent statements, and I want to thank all of those who have preceded me for what they have said. Now, I'm going to try to be very brief, and I can assure you that brevity is a magnificent accomplishment for the Baptist preacher. <laughs> and since I have two sermons to preach in uh, Los Angeles tomorrow morning, uh, I can assure you that I'll hold the lengthy message until that time. But I do want to thank you for your presence, and I think your presence is indicative of the fact that you are concerned about the great problems that we face uh, in our nation and all over the world. We have just heard from uh, Marlon Brando that these are confusing times. And I don't think anyone would uh, disagree with that. We are faced with a situation where we find restlessness among the poor and discontent among the affluent. And for some reason, it seems that this uh, mammoth uh, ship of state is not moving toward new and more secure shores, but toward old destructive rocks. It seems somehow that things are mixed up in our country. We have confused policies, confused priorities, and indeed confused purposes. I remember so well that President Johnson raised a question uh, some weeks ago when he was giving his State of the Union address. He talked of all of the beautiful television sets that we have over the nation, in fact, he gave the number, about 70 or 80 million. And he talked about uh, the beautiful automobiles and, and the massive expressways that will hold our automobiles up and keep them flowing. He talked about the number of automobiles, new automobiles that come out every year. And he said after that, yet that is questioning in the land. That is a strange restlessness. <laughs> and I guess uh, he raised the question because uh, he didn't quite know what was wrong. <laughs> well, there is something radically wrong. And I suspect it is that in all too many instances, we have allowed the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. We have maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. 
And so we've ended up with guided missiles and misguided men. And I guess that's the basis of the questioning and the restlessness facing uh, this generation. Our nation is in a mess. The world is in a mess. Now the question is, what do we do? And I must confess that I have uh, no pretense to omniscience. I don't know everything, and the answers are hard to find today uh, because of the great ambiguities of life and history. But we have to do something. Marlon Brando also mentioned the riot report, the Kerner report, that came out a few days ago. And it said some things to us that we cannot ignore. Some of us have been saying these things all along, but uh, nobody paid much attention to them. Now, maybe after they have now been said by a presidential commission, and now that these things have the halo of respectability about them, maybe some people will listen. But in gloomy and realistic Terms that report pointed out that our nation is moving toward two societies, one white and one black, separate and unequal. And the fact is that with this kind of move taking place, hatreds are deeper, tensions are greater, misunderstanding will be wider. But the Commission report didn't stop that. It brought out another thing that is often painful to hear, and yet it must be heard if the problems that we face in our nation are to be solved. And that is the fact that racism is still at the center of our nation. We must honestly face the fact that America is a racist society. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of an inferior people. It is a tragic notion that one group has all of the worth and uh, all of the knowledge, all of the significance all of the purity, and another group has all of the inferiority, the worthlessness, and the impurity. And whenever racism is a basic philosophy, whether it is expressed overtly or whether it is subconsciously or latently held, it always brings into being an absolute disrespect for human personality. Now, the first thing that must be on the agenda of our nation is to get rid of racism in all of its dimensions. And it means that white America will have to do something positively affirmatively and meaningfully in order to bring all of God's children into the mainstream.
of the life of this nation. It cannot be done short of something massive. And it means that those who have not known the pathology of the ghetto will have to somehow take that empathetic journey and join hands with those who have been denied and who have been hurt and who have been exploited for so many years. Massive programs are needed, and that means billions of dollars. And the question is whether the affluent part of America is willing to make the sacrifice so that everybody will be able to live a creative life. I was saying earlier this afternoon to a group that sometimes the bootstrap philosophy can be exaggerated. Certainly people should try desperately to lift themselves by their own bootstraps. But we must always understand that this cannot be an absolutistic philosophy. There's only so much that anybody can do. I was on a plane the other day, and a man started talking with me, and he said, uh, the thing about your people is that they don't do anything for themselves. And he went on to say that all of the other ethnic groups have come to America, and they face problems just like your people, and yet they lifted themselves by their own bootstraps. And I looked at him and tried to talk with him in understanding terms. And I said, you know, it doesn't help the Negro for insensitive, unfeeling white people to say that other ethnic groups who have been in this country 100 or 150 years and who came voluntarily have gotten ahead of him, and he's been here almost 350 years, and he was brought here involuntarily in chains. And I went on to say to him that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. And then I went on to bring out to him that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. And the fact is that when his color was made a stigma, that brought about a great sense of depression. There was no way to change it. And even linguistics and semantics conspired to make the Negro feel that he was nobody. If you open Roger's thesaurus, you will find there are some 120 synonyms for black. And virtually all of them represent something low, degrading, nasty, smut, dirty. You'll find about 130 synonyms for white. Almost everyone represents something high, pure, chaste, noble. And in a real sense, our children have so often been taught day in and day out 120 ways to feel that they are inferior, and whites have been taught 130 ways to feel that they are superior. 
And so a white lie in our society is a little better than a black lie. If somebody goes, if somebody goes wrong in the family, we don't call them a white sheep. We call them a black sheep. If we get uh, mixed up in other ways with the law, we don't call it uh, white male. We call it black male. Uh, we don't whiteball people. We blackball them. Now, this sounds a bit humorous, but it is true, and one can see what happened after generations of oppression and denial and a feeling that was developed because the color was made a stigma that you are nobody. And so many Negro boys and girls grew up feeling this, that they didn't have any dignity and any worth. I went out a few months ago to a program where my son and daughter were appearing. They are attending an integrated school in Atlanta, and they were the first Negro kids to go to this particular school. And they had a program that night entitled Music That Made America Great. And both my son, my oldest son, my oldest daughter were in the, in, in the choir, and they were singing the music that made America great. And I listened to the music, and they had the music of uh, various ethnic groups, beautiful music. And then I was waiting to hear some other music that I knew was great, the most original music on American soil, some of the most beautiful music that has ever come forth. Sometimes it emerges in sorrow songs, but it has some gentle sighings and glad thunders at times that can touch the soul, and it gave people hope. It lifted them. Great music. And I waited for it, and I never will forget that that concert came to an end, and there was not the singing of one Negro spiritual, or none of the music that has come into being out of the black people and out of the suffering and the agony of the black people of this country. Instead of that, the program ended with the singing of Dixie. And I looked at my son and my daughter having to end the program singing Dixie, the music that made America great. And I sat there and all but wept within. And I said to myself, how can they ever feel that they are somebody if they feel that they have no heritage, if they feel that they've done nothing or given nothing to the life of the world and to history? And how can these white students ever get rid of their prejudices and their feelings of inferiority or superiority until they know these things. And somehow we will never have an integrated society until we see these things, until we come to see that integration is not a problem, but an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. And these things don't always get across. I was trying in my little way to get this over to that man who didn't understand this. And I had to finally tell him another thing that is often overlooked. I had to say to him that nobody, no group has totally lifted itself by its own bootstraps. 
I reminded him of the fact that in 1863 a document was signed by Abraham Lincoln which was to free the Negro from the bondage of physical slavery, but it didn't give him any land to make that freedom meaningful. You know, it was something like keeping a man in prison for many, many years and suddenly discovering that he is not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted and then just going up to him saying, Now you are free, but you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. You don't give him any money to get any clothes to put on his back, nothing to get on his feet in life again. Every code of jurisprudence would rise up against this. But yet this is exactly what America did to the black man. It simply said, you are free. And by the thousands and millions, four million to be exact, they stood there penniless, illiterate, not knowing where to go and what to do. And the irony of it all is that at that same time, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. It provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. It provided later on low interest rates so that they could mechanize their farms. And today, millions of these people, or thousands of them at least, are being paid millions of dollars a year in federal subsidies not to farm. Senator Eastland, whom you may know, gets about $125,000 a year not to farm on various sections of his plantation in Mississippi. And yet these are the very people who tell the black people of America that they must lift themselves by their own bootstraps. Somewhere we must come to see that there is a massive job to be done, and it cannot be done without massive concern and without an understanding that that is a great deal of repentance that must take place. Now, we in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference are still trying. The job is often difficult, and I can say to you that it is terribly frustrating. Often we all feel that we are struggling in a situation where the problem is basic, basically insoluble, and yet in order to live, you've got to maintain hope, you've got to go on in spite of. You've got to have that something that the existential philosophers call the courage to be. And so we're trying to go on in spite of. And as we go on, we need the support of all people of goodwill. The problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. Now, I'm not sure if we have that many consciences left. Too many have gone to sleep. But there are some left. And we've got to be that something that Arnold Tornby, the historian, refers to as a creative minority, ready to do battle 
for the sacred, vital, valid issues of life, ready to do battle for the principles of justice and goodwill and peace and brotherhood. There are a lot of poor people in our nation. We've seen them in various ways, but so often we don't allow ourselves to see them. And therefore they become invisible, the invisible poor. I would not fool you when I say that I've been in the delta of Mississippi and I've been in the little shacks of people who earn less than $400 a year. I wouldn't be fooling you if I told you that I've been through the slums of Chicago. I lived in one. I've been through the slums of Cleveland. I lived there for about six months last year. And I would not be telling you an untruth. And I say to you that I've seen young Negro men and women not earning enough money and their parents not earning enough money to begin to function in the mainstream of life. I've seen the lead poisoning in their houses. I've seen the rats and I've seen the roaches. I've seen them away from their children. I've seen these things with my own eyes. And sometimes out of despair, out of agony and out of the aching anguish of their daily lives, they try to forget it all and they try to escape. Sometimes they turn out of humiliation to dope addiction, alcoholism, not wanting to face it. Sometimes a father will end up leaving his family because the welfare law says that a family can't get welfare if there's an able-bodied man in the house. And here he is unemployed, not able to get a job, but he's in the house. And so for humanitarian reasons... He ends up deserting the family so that the children can get something to eat. I've seen these things happen. Now the job facing the nation today is to get rid of poverty. We're the richest nation in the history of the world. Our national gross product this year is about $800 billion. That is what it is, the richest nation in the history of the world. It wouldn't take much to do what I'm talking about. It wouldn't take a great percentage of that national gross product to do what I'm talking about. If the haves are willing to somehow join hands with the have-nots and armed with compassionate traveler's checks, journey into that other country of their brother's hurt and denial and neglect. It wouldn't take that much. We've done it before. We talk in Congress about rewarding the rioters. And I've heard congressmen standing up saying they aren't going to reward the rioters. And I think of the fact that we developed a Marshall Plan after Hitler had destroyed a great deal of Europe. We built it back up. We built a great deal of Germany back up. And nobody said you are rewarding the Nazis. And that is something shameful about a nation. 
with people who have lived in it all of these years and because in anger and in moments of understandable bitterness they exploded into violence and the only response is to call for a day of prayer and the appointment of a commission and then the president won't even say a kind word about his own commission's report. It is time now for something positive to take place. And this is why we're going to have a campaign in Washington. This is why we're going with poor people. I don't know what we'll be able to do in Washington. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. I know we've got to take the inchoate rage of the ghetto and transform it into a constructive and creative force. It is not enough for an oppressed people to be angry because anger is not a program. It is necessary to unite and organize so that that anger can be transformed into a creative and constructive force. And this is what we are trying to do and our poor people's campaign in Washington taking the power of direct action, keeping this issue before the attention of the nation and developing a movement that is dramatic and attention-getting so that for at least 60 days nobody in this country can overlook the fact that there are poor people around and we solicit your support as we go to Washington, not to beg, but to demand jobs or income now. Now, there's one other thing. <clears throat> there's one other thing that I'd like to say, and that is we can't have a campaign like this in Washington without recognizing the fact that as long as the war in Vietnam is taking place, we cannot seriously address ourselves to the great problems, and the blight, and the despair, and the slum conditions of our cities. And that this is why I have been determined to keep these two issues together. And there comes a time when silence is betrayal. And I had watched that war in Vietnam, and I came to see that I could no longer be silent about it. Our nation is committing a grave crime, and I'm convinced if we, the people of goodwill, don't unite and keep the pressure on and demand an end to that war in Vietnam, that the curtain of doom may well come down on American civilization. The soul of our nation is being lost. Our image is terribly scarred. We are morally and politically isolated all over the world. And there isn't a single ally, former ally, in terms of a major nation in the world that would dare send a troop to Vietnam 
Not only are we morally and politically isolated in the world, we are playing havoc with our domestic destinies. Not only that, we are saying to the world that we are a terribly arrogant nation. Senator Fulbright calls it the arrogance of power. And we are arrogant in feeling that we have everything to teach every other nation and nothing to learn about them and learn from them. We are arrogant in feeling that uh, we are fighting for the rights, in quotes, of another people, and we won't put our own house in order. We are arrogant in sending young black men and white men to fight in brutal solidarity on the battlefields of Vietnam, and yet when they come back home, it is doubtful that they'll be able to live together on the same block. These are the facts of life. But not only that, the longer we stay in the war in Vietnam, the closer and closer we push the whole, the whole human race to destruction. So we must oppose this war. We must oppose it because it's evil, it's unjust, it's inhuman, and because it can destroy everybody. There are those who say to me, you should stick to civil rights and don't mix these issues. And I always have to say that it would be rather absurd for me to be working for integrated housing and integrated schools and not be concerned about the survival of a world in which to integrate. And I think we've got to see that the question now is the survival of mankind. John Fitzgerald Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. This is where we are today. And so let us continue to stand up for peace, and let us continue to stand up for freedom and justice. Let me say in conclusion that even though our struggle is much more difficult now, and it's more difficult because it's going to cost something. It's going to cost billions of dollars. As I said earlier today, it's easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to eradicate slums. It's easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee a guaranteed annual income or to create jobs. And so things are more difficult now. And I must honestly confess that I get uh, I go through those moments of disappointment when I have to recognize the fact that there aren't enough white persons in our country who are willing to cherish democratic principles over privilege. But I'm grateful to God that some are left. And I say to you that our goal is freedom. I believe we're going to get there, however difficult it is. And I believe we're going to get there because however much she strays away from it, the goal of America is freedom. And our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America, abused and scorned though we may be as a people. 
Our destinies are tied together. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. And for more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and exploitative conditions, and yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. And if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. And so together we will work until we make America one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. Nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you, and nobody, nobody gonna hit as hard as fight. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you get. It's about how hard you get and keep moving forward. How much you get and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Yes, we can. 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 I wanted to run out of that tunnel. For my dad. To prove to everyone that I what? Public Access America. Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access Public America. Access America. History, in the, history making. in the making. 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 History in history the making. In the making. Public Access America is on Twitter now for some reason. We will tweet and you will miss them, but follow Public Access America anyway on Twitter at Public Access Pod.